This episode of the Adoption Connection podcast is sponsored by the book, The Connected Parent, Real Life Strategies for Building Trust and Attachment, written by the late Dr. Karen Purvis and me. This new book for parents and caregivers combines the rich experience and scientific insights of Dr. Karen Purvis with personal stories from my parenting journey. There is hope for every child, every parent, and every family. Find out more about the book and get a free resource at onethinkfulmom.com slash book. Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 87 of the Adoption Connection podcast. Today, we're going to tackle actually a listener request to dive deeper into the ins and outs of prenatal trauma. And we're also going to cover a little bit about ACEs. So if you're not familiar with ACEs, it's actually an acronym that stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. So ACEs are potentially traumatic events that occur in childhood. For example, Oh, experiencing violence, abuse or neglect, witnessing violence in your home or community, having a family member attempt or die by suicide, uh, substance abuse in the family, mental health problems, being separated from a parent. So all these different things. ACEs are linked to chronic health problems, mental illness and substance misuse in adulthood. So there, it's a really important thing to understand because many of them can be prevented, but also because once we understand how many ACEs a child or a person has, we can begin to address the um, challenges that may come with that. Yeah, this was a landmark study done, I think, between Kaiser Permanente mm -hmm. and another government organization. And so you can Google this and find the results anywhere and see the links there's, it was really the first big study to link kind of experiences to physical implications later on in life. Like, I think it like doubles your risk of things like diabetes and things like that. Mm -hmm. And asthma, I think asthma was one of the important ones yeah, too. It's crazy. It's really fascinating. So today our guest is Daisy Gagnon. Stacy and her husband and their seven kids live in Indiana. She is a passionate advocate for children in the areas of special needs, adoption, and foster care. She's a professional nurse, educator, author, and speaker, and Stacy has committed her life to bringing an informed voice to raise awareness, training, and support for children in crisis and to those charged with their care. She is the creator and director of both Trauma Lens Care, where she provides training on trauma, substance abuse, and ACEs in schools, jails, and public forums. And she also is the co-founder of Lost Sparrows, which is a nonprofit that provides education and training to social service officials, government administration, and caregivers working with children in orphanages and foster care around the globe. Stacey, welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So we met last fall at uh, a Called to Love retreat out on the West Coast, and you are a phenomenal speaker, but I also had a chance to go to one of your breakouts, and it was on prenatal trauma, I think, and you started off by painting a picture of what a baby is experiencing from a sensory perspective in utero. And I just thought it was so impactful. I, I knew that prenatal trauma was a thing, but I had never heard it kind of narrated 
so well and in a way that I think will really help other people kind of envision what is going on. So could you do me a favor and kind of just replay that whole scenario for us here on the podcast? Oh, absolutely. You know, and part of why I ended up doing a lot of research in this was because one of the questions that I was receiving in a lot of my classes was, but I got my baby straight from the hospital. We adopted straight from the hospital. And, and so there's this, I think, misconception that um, kids don't remember in utero experience. I think we, we don't really see a baby as a baby until birth. I, as an RN, I started reading some evidence-based studies to really understand the experience of, of a fetus or a baby um, during pregnancy. What we understand um, is that as the fetus develops, its subconscious mind stores information to prepare it for the environment that it's going to be born into. And it actually formulates a set point for stress in utero. Now, let, let's really unpack that. And, and you know, as, as a nurse, I worked with a lot of moms that were pregnant and they would always know like, okay, this is what my body's doing at this point in birth. And the baby's the size of a cantaloupe or the baby's the size of an eggplant. But we never really talk about the sensory of experience of a baby and how bonding and attachment occurs prior to birth. And so um, what's important to understand, but let's start with the, the sense of touch. Um, the sense of touch is actually developed, developing and is online by eight weeks. So by eight weeks in utero, um, a baby's face, lips and nose is actually um, able to feel. By 12 weeks, the palms and the soles of a baby's feet are, are able to feel touch. One of the studies that I read about was um, moms touching their outside of their belly and how a baby actually recognizes a mother's touch over that of a stranger. So without any talking or without anything like that, they did these studies where mom touched the outside of her belly and through ultrasound, they were able to see the baby move towards mom's touch or reach out and touch mom's hand, which is just incredible. So then they had strangers do the same thing and the baby actually shied away or moved away from the external touch of a stranger. And, and that's in utero. So that's crazy. <laughs> that is insane. Yeah. And so then we know, okay, wow, a baby is already feeling and understanding the mother's touch by 12 weeks. And so then let's look at, at sight. And so, you know, we always think like, okay, what, what is a baby seeing in utero? Um, best way to describe it, I think, is like you're in a room with lights switched off and the curtains drawn, but you're able to see lights. And so they did these um, studies on third trimester babies. Um, they were, they were, it was called the red dot light pattern. And so they took these red dot patterns and they shined them in uh, outside the mother's belly and what they saw was that the babies were twice as likely to track the red dot movement if it resembled a human face. What that tells us is that this preference in babies, we see this after birth as well. So after a baby's born, they prefer a human face over other patterns in the environment, which suggests that our preference for a human face is actually innate which is mind-blowing, but it also makes clear that a fetus is actively responding to the external world long before they're actually born. Like, okay, wow, that's incredible. We, we know then that a baby is seeing things and that by 32 weeks, they're tracking lights outside 
the, of the mother, right? And so we also know that their hearing is online by 20 weeks and that their taste buds at 13 to 15 weeks are similar to that of an adult. When we think about a baby in utero, we now recognize that by 20 weeks in utero, all their senses are online. They can taste their mother, which means whatever mom eats, they are actually tasting and swallowing through the amniotic fluid. So they actually intimately know their mother's taste. They know the sound of their mother. They know this on a very intimate level. So they know what her heart rate sounds like. They know what the whoosh of her blood through the arteries sound like. They know the gurgle of her stomach. They know her voice. They know the, what their mother's touch feels like, which we talked about with the studies that were done. And so all of these senses are online and attuned to the main caregiver, the mother. And so the bonding and attachment process begins in utero. And so what, um, what I talked about in, in the class that you attended was I was meeting with the psychologist in Russia and he told me, Stacy, something you have to understand about um, attachment is that the strongest bond in the world is the bond of motherhood. He goes, but also the strongest bond in the world is the, is the trauma bond. And so I looked at him and I'm like, well, how can you have both? And that was when he walked me through the experience of birth. The experience of birth is actually a trauma experience for a baby. And so think about the baby who during the whole nine months of pregnancy, they are absolutely, um, every need is met by this person who they're living inside. So they are in this, um, uh, this beautiful cocoon of warmth and um, buoyancy and rocked as mom walks and talked to and fed and all of those things. At the point of birth, I don't know about you, but I definitely was not in a calm state. <laughs> I don't know what um, you're talking about. <laughs> I know, I know. There, you're one of those. I did too. I did there. two unmedicated births. So let me tell you, calm was definitely not in the picture for either one. <laughs> so please describe to me what um, your heart rate might have been like. Oh, I'm sure it was through the roof. And the second one came like before we even got like to a hospital bedroom. Like, I don't know. It was crazy. She was half born. I was walking down the hall. Everyone was stressed. Me, the doctor, the doctor that wasn't there. <laughs> it was a thing. Absolutely. So think about our babies, right? So at that point of, of birth, mom's heart rate's increasing. Um, mo hormonally, mom is releasing cortisol because mom is stressed, right? And then we also know that there might be sounds of, of you know, grunting or yelling because mom is uh, hurting because there is pain. Baby understands that this person that they live inside is feeling pain and stress. And then they are moved from the um, womb into the birth canal where contractions begin. And so that is a squeezing of the baby and moving from the environment that was completely regulated to something that is chaotic, stressful, and at dysregulated. At that moment, a baby believes they will die. A baby believes that something bad is happening because it's not what they've experienced for this whole period of time. All their senses 
are reading, this person who's cared for me is stressed out, hurting, and it's scary. So the baby moves from the birth canal and is born. What is the most beautiful picture of motherhood and birth is what we do with the baby after that. We naturally place the baby on the mother's chest. And just to give you a picture of, of what happens with the, with the mother, um, God designed the body in that moment on a mother to actually open capillaries on the mother's chest region to warm her body quickly in that area, which to me is absolutely fascinating. So the, the baby is placed on the mother's chest. The mother's chest gets warm by the opening of capillaries and she becomes almost like an, a temperature control zone again. On the mother's chest, the baby is hearing her heart rate that's now calm, hearing the mother's voice, feeling the mother's touch. And then we place the baby to the mother's breast and the baby then is tasting what the baby tasted in the womb. And so we see this com complete picture of, a t of the attachment cycle where we know with attachment, baby is stressed, cries, the need is met. So that's what happens through the birth process. Baby is stressed, cries, placed on the mother, the need is met. And so what happens when the baby then is taken by a new caregiver? or the baby then responds and has to go to the NICU. We see a break in that attachment cycle that causes stress. And so I think that that's a really good way to understand how in utero development and attachment is so incredibly important starting at conception, not at birth. Yeah, that's amazing. Talk to me about like, what is that is the trauma bond, what you're saying, like the attachment and bonding after a traumatic experience? Like, how are you defining that? So when, when I was speaking with him, he was saying a trauma bond is exact, exactly what you said, where um, it's an it's a, um, overwhelming need. So trauma in itself is when someone's stress response system is overridden, okay? And so in a child, they're strong, they're, they are incapable of handling the stress that is occurring in that moment. It feels out of control. It feels life or death. It feels like I, in this moment, might die. And so the trauma bond is when the caregiver or person in their life steps in to co-regulate and, and be with them in that moment to give them met safety or met need. Okay. And so in a typical having your own baby kind of neurotypical situation that bond is met by the person who the baby has been smelling, experiencing all of those things, which we know is really healthy, makes a really strong attachment and bond. Do we, as people who are caring for babies who were not grown in us uh, have the ability to kind of complete that trauma bond circle, even if it's not ideal? Absolutely. And, you know, I think what I don't want people to take away from this is some sense of hopelessness. I think it's a, it's an understanding that kids are not resilient to stuff that occurred in utero or at birth. I think it needs to, that we need to understand when our kids have things that are, that happen that are a broken attachment or those kind of things, or even drug exposure in utero or those things that we have to actually build a narrative 
for them to understand those emotions and those feelings because they're pre-verbal and they don't have the ability to understand those emotions. So much of healing in our kids, especially when we've adopted them at birth, needs to be a built narrative around the emotions and the feelings and what happened prior to them coming to us. Yeah, it's really important. And and in some ways, I think that trauma can be harder to overcome because from a logical standpoint, you get to be 10, 11, 12 teens, or even before that. And you're thinking, I was adopted from birth. I've been with this family my whole life. I don't know why I feel this way. I don't think I have the right to feel this way. You know, I know that I've been in a safe family my entire life and you almost don't have permission to feel the things. And so then you stuff them, you can't narrate for years. And it's definitely shifting now, fortunately, the professionals would also tell you, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. You've been loved and, you know, cared for and safe since birth. And so I think that can be even harder because we, ha- we can't narrate it as well because it was a pre-verbal experience. Absolutely. And understanding, and, and you said it, that we, there's, there, it's coming from a place of loss, right? And, and if we know, okay, we understand that kids, when they experience trauma or they experience um, um, something, abandonment, um, because that's, that's in, in essence, what this is, is abandonment, right? Um, they're going to blame themselves. So we're going to see kids spiral in shame and blame. And so like, I think what's important to understand is that this picture and this understanding is us speaking truth into our kids that this, this was not their fault. There was nothing wrong with them, that they are worthy and chosen and wonderful, that you know, this was an adult choice that they did not have any part of. And I think that that's, we don't do that because we think they don't remember. But what we have to understand is that our kids carry this on a cellular level. Their bodies do remember. And I'll just throw kind of like the flip side of the coin as an adoptee who for seemed resilient to a lot of that or didn't internalize a lot of that emotion. If your child isn't kind of wallowing in all of this loss and seems pretty resilient, there also doesn't mean that there's not necessarily anything wrong with him or her by personality and different things. A lot of us have different thoughts, feelings, and emotions about that initial loss, and it may come up at another time. Um, so I also don't want I've talked to a lot of parents who hear this narrative and then look at their kids and think like, oh gosh, maybe there's something wrong with my child because they're not feeling a certain way. Um, And so we just want to say that this is the narrative that's helpful to you if you do have a child who seems to be struggling and you're you're not sure why, especially if you adopted at birth and that this narrative can help fill that gap. Absolutely. Okay. So we crowdsourced some questions from our community and a lot of them revolved around very specific narratives around a birth mom and her experiences during her pregnancy. Now that we've kind of established that that period in time matters. And so, I mean, there are a bajillion reasons why a person who's pregnant would experience stress, even if there isn't an adoption plan in the works. So with what you just said all in mind, talk to us more about the impact on a baby whose birth mom is experiencing some kind of stress or chronic stress. Um, You know, people mention things like domestic violence, incarceration, abdominal binding. um, And then I think its own can of worms, and we'll hopefully get to a little bit of this as well, uh, substance exposure. 
Oh, absolutely. I, I think we just cannot negate the in utero experience because what the mother's experiencing, the baby's experiencing. And so, um, and because we now know from what we just talked about that the attachment cycle begins in utero, it's really important to understand that a mom's thoughts about the child and pregnancy, which would be love or rejection or disinterest, directly affects the child's subsequent sense of self, security, and esteem. And so let me, let me say that again. This is going to directly affect a child's self, uh, sense of self, their security, and their esteem. And so when we think about that and we think about a mom who's overwhelmed by life or who is, who's using substances um, or those kind of things, we see that these babies are absolutely affected by this. And, you know, they did, they, here's, I, I like to use a lot of studies because I feel like evidence-based studies give us just information that you're not just hearing it from me as a mom, but um, they did an evidence-based study. And what they have found that moms that have a negative attitude or high levels of stress during pregnancy, they have the highest rates of premature, low weight, and emotionally disturbed infants. Ambivalent mothers, which would be a mom who's just like not really caring one way or the other about birth, they have babies with an unusually high number of behavioral and gastrointestinal problems. And so when we look at the statistics of this and we see, we're like, whoa, okay, we're affecting the health of a child, not just the mental health, but the physical health as well, because there's a neuro gut component, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we see, when we see these babies that are being born, they have all these gastrointestinal issues and behavioral issues and those kind of things, we need to open our eyes and go, whoa, all right. What are we going to do to help change some of this? And I, and I do, you know, I feel like we're starting to change policy in our nation um, in working with, with pregnant moms, especially those that are substance using individuals, because it used to be like, well, you got to quit right now. <laughs> well, th that's just not even a reality. Yulia, actually, when, when we tell a mom who's using, especially like opioids, you will quit right now. She actually can kill her baby because the baby is going to be so bathed in cortisol and all these things happening that, that spontaneous abortions often happen because the baby can't handle the stress of a mom that's just completely cold turkey quitting. So we're starting to recognize the effect of stress and all of these things on babies in utero and changing policy and also um, systems to support moms through medication-assisted treatment, through providing... Um, therapies and things like that that are going to support her so that her stress level are lowers so that we're not seeing um, social determinants of health in kids declining because of the stress of the mom. And, and when there's such this huge cortisol spike, this cortisol bath as we, as it can be through nine months, how is that impacting the brain in terms of development? What, what we understand is that when you are thinking about, um, the development of the lower part of the brain. So we, we break the brain up into three, three spots, basically. You have the lower basement of the brain, which is like the survival brain. You have the midbrain, which is the emotional seat of the brain. And then you have the top of the brain, which is where you have all your higher level cognitive skills. So the lower level of the brain or the basement of the brain is being developed starting in utero to about 18 months of age. Okay, and it is like exponential growth. When you have a baby or in, um, in utero that is stressed out and bathed in cortisol, you end up having what we call like, uh, like almost a red brain. 
basically they, they don't trust, they're learning to not trust the world. They're learning that the world is unsafe. And this, if this continues after birth, where a baby cries and their needs are not met, or they're met in a way that is disorganized, then what we see is that basement of the brain being very large and very disorganized. And so children who then build off that basement of the brain um, and it's, it's disorganized and it's chaotic and there's no sense of safety and security and met need, when they move to the next parts of the brain, just like in a building, if the basement or the foundation is, is um, crooked, then we know as we move up in the brain that that also is going to cause issues in the upper parts, especially the executive functioning of the brain. And so a poor, a, a child that has incredible amounts of stress in utero to about 18 months, we're going to see behavior issues as they get older and the, uh, the inability during stressful times to access the upper part of their brain. And so what this looks like in your home <laughs> is the child who's 12 that acts like a three-year-old. Mm -hmm. So when my 12-year-old freaks out and throws himself on the floor like a three-year-old, that's because he's stuck in the basement of his brain. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds very familiar. <laughs> and so in that moment, you have to parent the three-year-old. Okay. Yeah. I, I work in the, um, the jail system. I work with inmates. And they get this. They will be like, oh my gosh, when I'm stressed out, I do the stupidest stuff. I don't even remember the stuff I do. Because what's happening when you are living in that basement of the brain, you and you have been stressed, you are going to, on a, you're not on a conscious level, going to act out of your emotions. And it's not even something that's a choice. So when I look at my kid who's on the floor acting like a three-year-old and throwing a big tantrum, when I say to him, could you just calm down? Yeah. <laughs> okay, it doesn't work. Like since the dawn of man, I don't think that's ever worked. I actually have to get the brain to calm down so I can help him access the upper levels of the brain. So, and it's so hard because a lot of times our, we get to the basement of our brains because they're yep. in the basement of their brains. And then it's just, it's all chaos. We say it's two little brains fighting each other. <laughs> I just got a fantastic mental image. <laughs> So, you know, the adverse childhood experiences study talked about a lot of things we experience in childhood. Is there any work being done to include what could happen in utero? Because a lot of our kids will come to us and maybe they came to us through infant adoption. Maybe, maybe they came through us in international adoption or, or situation where they are solidly integrated into our family. Maybe there's no contact. It's not an open adoption. There's no contact with birth family. And we look at this ACEs study and we look at all the questions and when we think about their time from birth on, they don't have many ACEs, um, but we know that they've had enough impact to them that we are going to see some of the things that ACEs seem to indicate, um, which would be, you know, mental health and, you know, other physical things as well. So how does that all, like, how do ACEs play into all of this? You know, I, I wish that ACEs had an in utero experience part of it because I, I have not, it's not something that I've seen being pulled in into that um, because I do believe that it is attachment and all those things and, and adverse childhood experiences actually do begin in pregnancy. And so, you know, just, just to give you um, 
an idea of what, what I see in the field. And I, I think to me, it's becoming groundbreaking because we are finally recognizing that kids are not resilient to what they experience, right? Um, I work in, in, in the jails and I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of inmates, men and women. And we know from the ACEs study that when you get above um, four ACEs, you've got some big things going on. But when you get above six, we're talking like a 20 year shortened lifespan. Um, I think is it 5,000% more likely to um, commit, try to attempt to commit suicide. Um, all, you know, all these things that are just mind blowing statistically. Well, I ask, um, I, I give the ACEs quiz to inmates. And guess what their average score is? Oh, it's got to be high. Yeah, it's seven. Wow. Okay? And, and then, but what's interesting about that is I asked them what their average age of drug use or onset was. Just give, give me a guess on what you think that is. Like 11 or 12. A absolutely. 11 and 12. All right. But then they started telling me, Stacey, you need to ask us when we started marijuana and alcohol. So I'm started, I that I started asking that in class, and the average age of alcohol and marijuana onset was eight. Wow. And so, you know, I, I look at that, and, and we, we look at this drug abuse problem. We look at these issues with, with pregnant moms. I mean, the majority of moms that are losing their babies, I would say, having lived in the foster system for over 12 years, is moms that are using, right? Or families that are, are, are using. When you start using a substance at eight years of age and you have an ACEs score of seven, tell me how much choice you have in your life and what you're doing. Not a lot, right? I mean, when yeah. I start, my brain's not fully developed. And so when we're looking at the ACEs study and we're looking at, at patterns of drug use and all of those things starting so young, but then we're also looking at generational drug use and generational recidivism, we have to start in utero because these moms were their moms were used using as well and their grandmas were using as well and we see wow there are effects in this we see the smoke right we see the smoke and we want to go and we because aces that's the smoke and we're showing up with fans instead of water to put the fire out so we have to start looking and addressing these issues with pregnant moms the best thing for my children, and, and this is really hard, I think, for in the adoption world, right? This, I'm going to say something and you might edit it out, but <laughs> I have five adopted children. The best place for my children would have been if they could have stayed with their biological mother. Yeah. The very best thing for them would have been a mother who would have been able to care for them because then there wouldn't have been that loss because my kids will carry forth that abandonment loss because of that. And so I think that that's what's important to, to understand is that you're not competition with the bio mom. There needs to be some type of understanding about the biological mother, but also the understanding with you as an adoptive mother, that the very best thing that God designed to happen would have been for them to stay with their biological parent. And so, so much of what I try and do is support that because my kids have to heal from things that no child should have to heal from. Yeah, no, we actually 100% support that here at the Adoption Connection. And I think partially because Lisa's a birth mom and she understands the trauma 
from a birth mom side of that separation, I'm an adoptee. And so um, we talk a lot about family preservation here. Um, So that kind of leads me to this like open adoption question, because that is, I think, rightly so becoming a big part of this conversation. You know, how do we keep our kids connected to their families of origin? Because I think there's a lot of space for healing. But when we have families who are generationally entrenched and a lot of things that look like aces and we are in relationship and possibly, you know, sending our kids on visits or, or possibly we're foster parents and we don't have a choice. You know, we're sending our kids to do visitation. They're bouncing back and forth. What's the impact of, you know, kind of intermittent exposure to things that would be ACEs through like, because they're in the system or through an open adoption? Like, what does that look like for our kids? Like, and what's, what is that? What do you think about all that? (laughs) And I will tell you when I first started out, I was afraid of bio parents. Now I work a lot with them and, and uh, let me, let me answer that question with, with a little bit of a story. I believe that we have to understand the narrative of the bio parents to be able to build the narrative for our children. So healing is going to come from understanding the bio parents narrative and giving that information to our child. And and let me, let me tell you this story. I was in, um, was in the jail and I was meeting with a pregnant mom and it's really, really interesting to see a, a pregnant woman with tattoos all over her body and a swollen belly in, um, you know, orange jumpsuit and um, shackles, right? And it's just heartbreaking, right? Um, and just set these women straight, <laughs> right? You know, I think I get put in these situations often for me to actually learn a lesson instead of be teaching someone something. Yeah. So I, I walked in and to strike up conversation, I'm sitting across from her knee to knee. And I said, wow, what's that, what's that tattoo on your arm right there? And she looked at me and she said, that's the day I killed my mother. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like that was not, you know, what I thought. And I said, could you tell me more about that if you're willing to share? And she got tears in her eyes and she said, um, I was, I was um, raised by my parents and I always thought, and I asked them, are you really my parents and my adopted? Because for some reason, I always felt different. But they told me no, that they were my parents. But one day when I was 12, my older sister had come home. And she came in my room and she was stealing money from my wallet. And she told me that I owed it to her because she was my mother. And she goes, I found out that day that my older sister had birthed me. And my parents had taken me from her because she was a drug user. And they had decided that they would not tell me that I was adopted. She goes, at that point, I felt like my whole life had been a lie. And so I wanted to bond with my mother. She was my mom. And I looked up to her because she was my mom. And in order to join her, I started using drugs with her. She goes, and then fast forward 10 years and we were best friends living a drug lifestyle. And I had gotten a chunk of money and went and bought some drugs and I took it to her and was going into town to run an errand. And when I came back, she had overdosed and died on the floor. And this tattoo is the day that I killed my mother. And I'm just sitting there like just completely dumbfounded. And I I recognize that understanding where a bio parent comes from gives us an empathy and a compassion and an understanding of why they're at where they are. 
And she looked at me and she told me, she goes, Stacy, if you read my file, you would think I was a piece of SHIT. She goes, I would look like the worst human in the world. But I'm going to tell you right now that I would step in front of a bus for my kids tomorrow. Understand that I am half of my children. So if there's anything good in my kids, that's part of me. She goes, and I pray to God that they will end up being good, loving people. She goes, but I'm not who you see on paper. I love my children. I just can't stop. And I just, I, li I literally left the jail that day and sat in my car and cried because it really opened my eyes to, we need to not fear the parents of our, our, our adopted children. They have a narrative and a story and a brokenness that we need to understand because that's what's going to help our children heal. Yeah. How do we tell a narrative to our kids without inducing more trauma when the story is that dramatic? And, you know, I'd like to say that a lot of us aren't going to face that, but the truth is, is that there really is that level of drama in a lot of our kids' stories. I've, I've worked with several psychologists, even with working with my kids. And if, if you look at some of the science behind this and the understanding, when you're looking at stuff from um, Bessel van der Kolk and The Body Keeps the Score mm -hmm. and Dr. Bruce Perry and, and um, Gabor Mate is really great. You know, when you're reading all of this, we understand that <laughs> we're not actually re-traumatizing our kids when they know their narrative because they already know their narrative. They're carrying it in a dark place with no understanding of what happened to them. Because forever, I'm like, how can I tell my child that he was physically abused by his parent as a three-month-old? How do I do that? But recognizing and speaking with the psychologists and the people that are working with me and my kids, that my child already knows this on a cellular level. And if I don't help him understand and express the emotion and the pain and the things behind that, then I'm going to make him continue to carry that without an understanding of that. And so that's why the body keeps the score with such groundbreaking work because it talks about that. And, and I'll, let me, let me tell you, let me preface this. So I, I was teaching a class and after the class, a, a woman came up to me and said, I know something bad happened to me. So what you said makes sense. What do I do? I've, I've been on antidepressants. I have been suicidal. I am all these things. And I said, talk to your parents, ask them to please tell you if something happened. She ended up coming to me a month later and she said she called her mother and she said, please be honest with me. Well, her mother told her that she had been um, molested at the age of two by the babysitter's husband and that they had, instead of prosecuting, left town and said, we don't want her to find out what happened. We'll just cover it up. Kids are resilient. She'll forget. It, she goes, Stacy, I have known this happened to me. I had known something bad happened to me. It was just this dark thing that I couldn't understand. I thought there was something wrong with me. She goes, and now I know it's that something happened to me. And that's what ACEs is all about. But then she was able to do EMDR therapy and go through um, counseling and help. And now she's off antidepressants. She goes, I feel like a new person because I have always, my whole life, known something dark and scary and bad had happened. And now I actually know it happened to me. It's not something wrong with me. Hmm. And so I think it's the same for our kids. They need to know that there's nothing wrong with them, that something happened to them. 
Yeah. And, and that's the same narrative way back at the beginning of the podcast, episode four, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Jane Schooler came on and answered that kind of exact question, how to talk to your kids about their story. And she said similar things about, you know, your kids were there, they know. And so we just need to help them, you know, age appropriately put words. Age appropriately is absolutely, absolutely correct. I knew a lot of, um, of, of question, like, okay, here's, here's, this is really important. And this in adoptive parents, if they hear one thing today, it should be this. Okay. If you don't talk about it, your kids won't talk about it because they're going to think you're ashamed. So you're adding to some shame and blame when we don't even bring it up. Okay. Mm. And so I do a lot of this. Um, one, number one, I never talk badly about their parent. So their bio parent. So I am giving narrative without tearing down a bio parent. Okay, which is hard because my kids have some hellacious stuff that happened to them, but I tell it in a way that people make choices when they're on drugs that they would never make and bad stuff happened. Okay. And so, but I, I do a lot of leading questions to help my kids to be able to process where they're at. So it's like, Hey, do you ever have a question about what your, your biological mother was like? Do you have a question about adoption? Do you have a question about, like, I give them questions and ask them, do you have, because I want them to know they can talk about it or ask things. And I'm not upset by giving them information. So if you don't talk about it, they won't talk about it. You have to most of the time bring it up. As my kids have gone into their teen years, we talk about it on a deeper level with more of their story at the emotional age, they're able to carry it. That's really important because people ask me all the time, when do I give them their full narrative? When their emotional age is capable of carrying it, not their chronological age. I have a 12-year-old that is emotionally like a seven-year-old. I cannot share with her what I can with my 13-year-old who is 13-year-old emotionally. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that's really wise and practical advice. On a practical level, for parents who are bringing kids home from the hospital and, you know, we're circling back to this whole trauma bond experience, you know, loss of birth mom, what can parents do proactively to kind of soothe that trauma? I I think it's what your parents are naturally going to do. It's responding every time a baby cries. Babies babies cry because there's an unmet need. Right. And so, um, it's, I'm really big in baby carrying, you know, pack that Mm -hmm. baby next to you all the time. You you know, we're meeting, meeting your child on a sensory level, which is, um, you know, warmth and touch and taste and smell. And all of those things are hugely important. Um, if they, if your foster child is going on visits, um, I've asked the biological mothers to um, hold the blanket against them and then send the blanket back and I'll swaddle their baby in that. So there's two caregivers. Um, utilize the biological mother. You, you know, as foster parents, we are supporting reunification. And so I'm always having mom do things that is going to support bonding and attachment with her. Um, and so that is, okay, yep, the blankets should smell like mom. You know, those are things that, that can help, um, let mom pump breast milk. Like I, you know, there's so many things that you can do to help that baby to not be stressed out because at the end of the day, it's about helping the baby be regulated. And so I would use breast milk from bio mom, you know, and you get, always get the fears of what if they're doing this and what if they're doing that? And 
use your pediatrician. There's wise pediatricians that can tell you, okay, this is okay. You can do this. You know, but as far as the smell on the blankets and those kind of things, those are really, really important to soothe that baby because that's all they've known in utero. That's really good. So talk to us about our kids or babies who we know have been exposed. And I know that there's a ton of research about the effect of alcohol and we did an episode on that. Um, but what about everything else? You know, cannabis use is on the rise right now. Um, a lot of our kids were addicted to other substances, meth or other things. Um, you know, maybe they went through a withdrawal after they came to us. What are the long-term effects of substance abuse in utero? Um, maybe even the things that aren't being talked a lot about outside of alcohol, which we know obviously is creating irreversible organic brain damage. So interestingly enough, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm looking at um, a baby that's, you know, had meth exposure or cocaine exposure, what it's really important to understand is how that is actually like the most damaging thing for a child. I mean, you said alcohol, absolutely. But also what is one of the most damaging thing for a baby is when the attachment process is interrupted. Okay. And so a child that's been exposed to drugs in utero um, is often inconsolable. They're in pain. There are all these things that are going on that's actually messing with the attachment process. Because if I, I, I don't know, like I have walked the floors with many a baby that is coming off of, um, and I'm probably not stating it the right. I mean, there's, I'm trying to remember the terminology because we don't say babies are withdrawing because they weren't addicted, you know, like, but basically just let me talk straight. A baby that is trying to come off of a drug that is screaming incessantly, that is in pain. It's that high pitched shrill. They don't like to be touched. Stimulation hurts them. You know, like all of those things um, that we see in babies because they're in pain. Well, that actually hurts the attachment process. And so what I think are long-term effects from that are what we see in complex developmental trauma, Mm -hmm. Um, ADHD, an inability to regulate themselves, we see an uptick in um, mental health disorders because the, the bottom line in every single mental health disorder in, in, that we have from bipolar to schizophrenia to borderline personality disorder to any of those things, it is the inability to regulate oneself, okay? So a baby that has been exposed is not able to utilize the natural caregiver attachment bond to regulate themselves. So when you have weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of a baby that can't regulate, then we're building a framework and a structure that's going to be pretty hard to overcome. And so we see kids that have been exposed to meth and those kind of things that are ADHD, that are, um, have behavioral issues, that have an um, inability to um, access cause and effect, um, to um, have executive functioning skills that are strong, all of those things that we, what, that we need to be able to function in a classroom and function in society. And so that is what I see. Um, as far as overcoming that, it is, so much of it is, is trying to, to, to really, really push the attachment cycle with kids. When you first get a baby home that, that, is, with, that is having um, symptoms of, of coming off of different drugs, it's super important to know what drug they were exposed to and talk to your NICU nurses or your, doc, your pediatrician about, okay, with this drug, what do I need to do? Because sometimes 
these babies need to be in low light, low stimulus, don't touch them a lot, those kind of things. Um, you need to know what to look for. And so, you know, that the, the quicker we can get them through that period and starting that attachment process, the less likely we're going to see some of the behavioral mental health issues later in life. Yeah. What about kids that aren't born with substances present in their bodies, but we know that they were exposed at some other time prenatally? That's absolutely, they're going to see the same effects as far as um, long-term issues. Not, not the withdrawal symptoms maybe, but you might see some of the framework of the brain is changed later on in life. And that's that executive functioning, ADHD. Um, I've worked with, well, I've had children live in my home and come through my home who, um, as they got older, probably the number one thing I saw was ADHD. Yeah. Um, and I, I just think that we, we don't know what we don't know, right? Like we're talking some major hardcore substances that a baby is exposed to. But also, what is that doing to mom that the baby is experiencing as well? Yeah, that whole piece. I mean, from a diagnosis perspective, other than, I mean, there's all those diagnoses that, that they have symptoms of. So, you know, a lot of our kids are diagnosed with ADHD or ODD and other things like that. Is there anything in the medical community that, besides fetal alcohol, because we know the alcohol link that can say, you know, my child was exposed in utero. And so this is what we can, you know, either a diagnosis or some kind of guideline, like, and how do we convince other people who may not be, you know, whether it's teachers, other caretakers, extended family members, a spouse, ourselves, you know, that, 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 that exposure matters. I mean, other than the fact that we can see the behavioral symptoms of it, because there's, I think there's this human part of us that sees the behavioral symptoms and, you know, culturally, we pawn it off on other things. You know, they're being willfully disobedient, which if they're di- been diagnosed like ODD, like we kind of, pawn, we pawn them off on these other diagnoses. Like how do we, is there a way to link that exposure, like in the science world that can help people like have evidence? <laughs> yeah. And interestingly enough, because um, some of the programming that I ran in Arizona was working with um, substance exposed newborns. Um, in the home. And, you know, I combed, I combed literature trying to find long-term outcomes and things like that. And I struggled to find it. And, and I, I, here's why. Okay. In the medical model, we like to isolate ourselves from the behavioral health model. So we like to separate the body from the brain is kind of what I think. And, And so, okay. So I can tell you the physiological effects of exposure. I could tell we have lots of statistics on that. But to delineate that or to tie that into behaviors 10 years later, there's not that leap. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so I have struggled maybe one of your listeners has inf- they've been able to find some information like that, but what we what I have seen over and over in even working with some incredibly smarter people than I am, they absolutely there's a struggle to connect mental health and physical health. We like to separate them, including we used to separate like my foster kiddos that came in my home. They had an insurance card for medical and an insurance card for behavioral health because we don't connect the two. And we're starting to see like, and that's what the ACEs study did. 
is it connected those physical health problems with things that happened in childhood. And so I think we're going to start seeing more of that come out. But as far as a, okay, here's a document to use. I have struggled to find that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that helps me feel better just to know that we're not all missing something. If you haven't found it yet, it's probably not out there because <laughs> I know that you're, do, you're a good researcher when it comes to that stuff. I do know one thing though. I think it's really important to understand. I believe the statistic is 80% of children that are in foster care have been exposed to alcohol. I, it always blows my mind when, um, uh, you know, that a lot of foster parents don't realize that. So when I teach foster parents, like their jaws drop open, they're like, I never knew that. Hmm. And fetal alcohol is not just facial features. No. Okay. It's, it's a spectrum. And so I'm glad you did a podcast on that. Yeah. And, and we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Um, one last thing, talk about marijuana, just cause it's, it's seen kind of in a different class of, you know, how it affects people. Um, mm-hmm. Have you seen anecdotally kind of how that plays out in our kids? Absolutely. So most people are not using marijuana separate than everything else, you know, and it, you know what, let me tell you an anecdotal story. I think this is super interesting. I I'm working with hundreds and hundreds of inmates and they will all tell you they don't want their kids to ever use marijuana because it's going to end up becoming a harder core drug. Yeah. We used to call it the gateway drug when I was in high school. Yeah. Yep. And so they're just like, no. And if you ask them like, do you think marijuana is a drug? Um, yeah. Like, so as far as the effects, um, in utero, they're, they're starting to come out with more studies on that, but there's, there's not a ton because you see physicians that are actually prescribing it for nausea. Well, I'm very much a, um, prevention based person. And I am like, no, anytime you are adding something to your body that alters you, that's, that's a drug. That's not good. That's not natural. And so you know, I, I really feel like we are opening a Pandora's box when we start looking at marijuana as a safe drug. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks for that. Well, thank you so much for all of your wisdom, knowledge, experience. Stace, is there anything, last thoughts, this is your soapbox. Is there anything else that you want <laughs> people to, to know before they, before they walk away from this? I just hope they're encouraged and I really, again, encourage them to learn and understand their child's narrative in utero, understand the bio parents if possible, or understand the orphanage setting or all those things that, that their kids that occurred with their kids prior. Don't be afraid of history. Don't be afraid to understand history because it's, that's where we help our kids heal. Hmm. Well, on that note, cease. Thank you again so much. There's so much here. I think this is one where you're going to have to listen two or three times to get out all the nuggets. Um, So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed this interview with Stacy so much. I have a lot of respect for her and the work that she does. I was particularly interested in her work with Uh, inmates, female inmates. And I just think she has a lot to offer us in terms of understanding the impact of trauma on babies as they're developing. I I just think it's fascinating. I'm so glad she shared it with us. Yeah, she's so, so smart. I love how she brought in so many kind of research studies, but she's also super down to earth and she'll be the first to admit that she doesn't have it all right. You know, that she's 
kind of on this crazy hamster wheel like the rest of us. If you ever have a chance to interact with her or hear her speak, uh, definitely do it. You can visit Stacy at ransomforisrael.com. That's her blog. And her two organizations are lostsparrows.org and traumalenscare.org. She's also on Facebook as Stacy Jackson Gagnon. You can find all the places to connect with her at the show notes. And you can find those at theadoptionconnection.com slash 87. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.